Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Peter Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 5th of March. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Ito, it's another week, another another seven days passed. How is Berlin? Amazingly, I have some uh, non-vaccine news to talk about for this. There are two state elections coming up in Germany. So there's Baden-Württemberg and Rheinland-Pfalz, which are going to go to the polls a week on Sunday to elect their regional parliaments or their Landtags. And this is seen as the first big electoral test for the new leader of the, or president, I think, of the Christian Democratic Union, Angela Merkel's party, the ruling party in Germany, Armin Laschet, who has only been in post for a couple of months, but will face his first real test in front of voters. Although the voters of Baden-Württemberg and Rheinland-Pfalz probably won't be casting a ballot on him, the result of the elections may influence how smooth his path to being determined the CDU candidate for Chancellor for the federal elections due in September will be. So that's very interesting. And how is DC? I'm going to give you more vaccine news because basically every Thursday and Friday, DC makes new vaccines available. As I said last week, for a while, it was just 65 and older, and now they've added certain eligible health conditions, but the website has still been a mess. And then this week, they said, next week, we're going to launch a new pre-registration system where everyone can, you know, you, you put in your information, and then when it's your time, you can, you'll can you get called up to make an appointment, which is great, except that we just found out that they haven't yet selected a vendor for this new system that is being rolled out this week. And obviously, on the one hand, this is a very specific like DC story. But I also do, the reason I am complaining about this on the podcast is that I do think it speaks to the mess that distribution has been in the United States. And President Joe Biden this week said that there will be enough vaccine for every adult in America by May, or the end of May. But having the vaccine and distributing it, we're learning are two, are two very different things. I don't think, though, that that will go down in history. And so I'll just move to our next <laughs> our next segment. Ido, what is the thing that happened this, this past week that you think will go down in history or just be remembered or that you would like to talk about now? So Italy blocked the shipment of about 250,000 doses of AstraZeneca's vaccine to Australia. This comes in the midst of tensions between EU and AstraZeneca over 
AstraZeneca not fulfilling its contractual obligations to the EU to provide as many doses as it said it would have been able to provide and that the EU paid for. And so Italy's new Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, had been one of the most prominent advocates of using powers on export controls to keep doses produced within the European Union, in the European Union, if AstraZeneca was not fulfilling its contractual obligations. And that's what's that's what's now happened. So I think this shows the heating up of the global struggle for, for vaccine doses and what has been termed vaccine nationalism. And I don't think this is going to be the last example of this. I think as more and more countries battle for what is for the moment a very scarce medicine, there will be more and more of this. And what's your moment of the week? I won the coin toss ahead of the recording of this podcast to get to say this is my moment of the week. Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has taken his Fidesz party out of the European People's Party, or the EPP, which is this large center-right group in the European Parliament. Gosh, for years now, there have been this will they or won't they over the EPP and suspending Fidesz because the, you know there are certain standards of rule of law that you are expected to respect when you are a member of a major party in European Parliament, because you've all signed up as members of the EU to these common standards. And Hungary has kind of been, not kind of, has been pushing the envelope and playing with the rules and and saying, well, we interpret these standards differently. Anyway, essentially what happened is that there were new rules adopted that would have allowed the EPP to vote for the exclusion of a member of, or members of the group. And Orban basically said, you can't fire me, I quit, and has resigned from the EPP, or Fidesz, took Fidesz out of the EPP. So we will see how this changes sort of the balance of power in the European Parliament going forward. And with that, I think it's time to introduce our guest. So our guest this week is Ravinder Kaur. She is the Associate Professor of Modern South Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and the author of Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me over. So we have sort of mentioned in passing at the beginning and ending of this podcast for weeks now, the farmers protests in India. And so we're going to spend this podcast really delving into the subject and giving it the attention and conversation that it deserves. But before we do that, you wrote a piece for the New Statesman, which we will link to when we post this podcast called How a Farmer's Protest in India Evolved into a Mass Movement that Refuses to Fade. And one of the things that you write about is the combination between capitalism and nationalism in India. I think that the link between the two is sometimes overlooked. And so wanted to ask you before we get into the specifics to talk about this connection between capitalism and nationalism, and why it doesn't maybe get as much attention as nationalism on its own does. I think I'll begin by saying that, uh, you know, the entire discourse of globalization throughout 1990s was couched in a very uplifting, optimistic kind of language, which was all about uh, networks, connections, flows. And I think at that point, what we failed to do was to speak about capitalism the way we should have been. Mm. What I mean to say is that uh, globalization, the entire phenomena, is seen as something which is opposed to nationalism. Whereas what I'm showing in my work is that uh, right when we were speaking about this interconnected world, something else was taking place, namely the remaking of the nation state into an enclosure of capital. What I mean to say is that precisely when we have this language of openness, of freedoms, then actually the nation states are closing 
so as to become territories. You know, when you begin to reimagine the nation state as a territory of natural resources, people as human capital, and culture itself, you know, cultural identity as something which can be branded. So this entire remaking of the nation state is happening. This phenomena is called investment destination. And it is, you know, India is a prime example of this phenomena which begin unfolding and uh, which basically means that we are witnessing it right now, that this desire to become the factory of the world and where you imagine the entire nation and its people as factors of production which can be deployed. So in a way, nation, so nation itself is a business enterprise at this moment and which is totally overlooked. So I think these are the two things that I have tried to bring together. And how do you see this these sort of twin phenomena playing out in the farmers' protest? So first of all, I must say that today is the 100 days mark has been reached, that the protests have been going on. And I think for many people, for political analysts, I think it has been a great shock that uh, these protests have not only started, but they have endured so long. And these protests, in a way, they are opening up what is an open secret, the fact you know, the entire nation state, uh, you know, India has been, the different sectors of economy have been opened up one by one, one by one. And agriculture is actually the largest sector of the economy, which had thus far not been touched. And the uh, agricultural sector also employs nearly half the workforce, workforce of India. And it touches a very large number of lives and livelihoods. So what we are witnessing is, that after three decades of economic reforms, you know, that entire notion of, you know, optimism and uplifting language that we are going to make it, we are going to arrive in the world. And of course, the Indian economy has been faltering. So at this moment, to kickstart the economy once more, what the government does is to open up the sector to free market. And no one had expected that in the dark of uh, the pandemic, that such a protest would arise, protest which is enduring and it continues to expand in newer ways every day. One of the things you you talk about in the piece is how keen the Modi government is on economic liberalisation. I believe India is a country which constitutionally defines itself as socialist. And I was wondering if you could describe how this current form of politics evolved and, and where it emerged from, given India's, I suppose, traditional role in an online movement and also defining itself officially, constitutionally as a socialist country? I have to say that it is somewhat misleading, you know, the use of the term socialist because, you know, India is not inherently a socialist country. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in Copenhagen and, you know, Denmark, you know, the whole Nordic model, it's a strong welfare state. So socialism in India somehow does not fit that notion that we have of, uh, you know, distribution of resources. And India is a highly unequal country. And what we term as socialism is literally a few subsidies that we are speaking about. One example would be the public distribution system, which has been evolved to ensure that the poorest of the poor, that they would not go hungry. Because we must not forget that nearly 400 million people in India are also poor. So I think these are stopgap measures that we somehow turn into, you know, we speak about socialism. Many political commentators do that. So I think we should go away from that. So I think the shift that you're speaking about is that uh, India for long had been the champion, you know, in the post-colonial world after decolonization in mid-20th century, you know, to bring about the new, what they call the new economic order. 
And uh, this was tremendously important because much of the anti-colonial struggle in 19th and 20th century had been also about regaining economic independence to have control over uh, the resources of the nation. So when independence comes, then rebuilding the economy became one of the things. And across Asia and Africa, the move was also to have a fair and equitable distribution. So, of course, this language of socialism comes from there, but it never really evolved into you know fair distributive system. So I think 1990s is the moment when somehow reluctantly India kind of embraced. And there is, of course, a specific history which is related to the economic shock. But then it has embraced it pretty well and primarily because two things became combined. One is this very, you know, the Hindu nationalist movement, which also started taking prominent shape in Indian politics in 1990s and which joined hands together with the free market forces. This is the edifice, the structure upon which the contemporary politics in India is constructed. I suppose what I mean is, how did India get to a point where a political party is so comfortable making the case, either rhetorically or in practice, for quite harsh liberalisation as you set out in your piece, whereas obviously India remains, by and large, although with very unequally distributed wealth, a very poor country. How did it get to the point where the BJP can very forcefully make the case for free markets and for economic liberalization? Yes, I think that's a very important point you're making because, I mean, it it has been three decades of economic reforms by now. And uh, somehow a political consensus emerged that market has to be the future. And it has evolved slowly. But at some point, even the Communist Party of India sort of gave up on that claim that uh, there could be an alternative vision. I can just uh, give you one example. At the turn of the millennium, there was this campaign. It was called India Shining. And uh, India Shining basically was addressed to the Indian public, asking them to take pride that finally with market reforms, we can look ahead to good times. Congress party, which uh, interestingly is the original party of reforms in India, it uh, made a counter campaign. It was called Aam Admi Ko Kya Mila, means what did the common man get out of it? Basically, the idea was that, look, India is an unequal society. The common man is not benefiting from the reforms. But what is interesting in this is that they were speaking the language of investment and returns on investment. And actually, the whole opposition and the ruling party, they were all speaking the language of who can do more reforms, who can bring more prosperity through reforms. So I think this is how it has simply become a matter of common sense in Indian politics, that each party continues to speak about more and more reforms, which is why I think the protests are quite uh, stunning that they overturn that logic in a very strong way. I have myself been surprised about it. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Returning to the farmers' protest, you said at the top that people are surprised that the protests have gone on as long as they have, that they haven't just been been pushed aside or given up. And this is obviously not 
the first series of protests that we've seen in recent years. Last year, there was uh, Shaheen Bagh in, in Delhi. We've seen protests against the, the Citizenship Amendments Act and, and attempts to redefine who gets to be a citizen in, in India. What makes the farmers' protests different? I think, as I said, that uh, most people are surprised that they have not you know, withered away. Number two, each protest is, it seems alike, but it is quite different. And what is different about this protest is that it, this, first of all, seemed to have learned from the mistakes made in the previous protests. So somehow, you know, there is almost a script which plays out, you know, where the government tries to say that these people are anti-national, they are traitors, that uh, they are somehow trying to break the nation, nation's integrity. So I think here, if you look at the current protests, they have tried to build a language which is very different. It is language of solidarity. And they have also learned to play to the gallery. So, for example, they have tried to create their own newspaper or media presence, which the earlier protests were not able to do. So in a way, uh, there are, you know, farmers unions, they have, you know, somehow they have their own newspaper, a very strong social media presence, and they have been able to build strong alliances with the diaspora abroad. And uh, please bear in mind that, you know, these uh, communities They have very strong presence in the U.S., in Canada, in U.K., and many other places. Do you think that diaspora support, involvement, is that ultimately beneficial to the cause or does it complicate as much as it helps? Yes and no, in the sense that, uh, you know, you can always complicate or problematize it. But at the same time, knowing that the Modi government has made diaspora a key cornerstone of its own political constituency makes it very difficult to rubbish all the claims of the diaspora. Because if you if you recall that when, you know, American election was uh, taking place, Prime Minister Modi actually held a whole public rally together with Trump in order to uh, appeal to the Indian community in the US. So I think that has become a kind of the standard that uh, diaspora is very much involved in Indian politics. So in that sense, I think it is it cannot be brushed away just as easily. These protests have been going on for, for several months now, and they don't seem to show any signs of giving up. Do you think there's any sign of the government giving in? Or how, how do you see this playing out over the next few few months? I think this is right now, there is this wait and watch game going on. There have been 10 rounds of discussions, but since January, they have not been, the you know, late January, there has not been any discussion. So I think in the meantime, what has happened is that uh, the government is hoping that it will somehow just wither away with given the, you know, whatever internal contradictions. Uh, but on the other hand, what you can see is that the protest is continuing to expand in ex- unexpected ways, meaning that instead of focusing on Delhi city, which was the original focus that let's go to Delhi, Chalo Delhi, instead it is spreading in the countryside. And what I mean is that there is this whole, you know, form of called Mahapanchayat, which is the community gatherings which are happening across actually Haryana in uh, Western Uttar Pradesh, in uh, in parts of Rajasthan, where different castes and communities are coming together to mobilize. And in some villages, for example, people have put up boards and banned BJP politicians from entering villages. So this is interesting, like it is taking a life of its own, which no one had expected. So Delhi is no longer the focus. It is spreading elsewhere. What's your your sense of how 
these protests are seen by the population at large. Obviously, as you've mentioned, India is still a largely agricultural society and economy, but there must be some kind of conflict between society at large and the farmers and, and specifically the, the farmers protesting and, and the different models that they that they represent. No, absolutely, because we must bear in mind that uh, Modi government has a very strong electoral constituency that it caters to. And those people certainly support. So government has its a strong support. And then there is additional group which supports, which is that, you know, people who sincerely believe that market can do wonders. So there is this whole group of people in the center or center right, which do believe that market is the only way out. But I think what has complicated the situation is, you know, somebody, a figure like Disha Ravi, the young climate activist who was arrested because of the toolkit conspiracy theory. You know, because a lot of uh, climate activism in India is done by young people who belong to middle class families and often upper caste families who also happen to be the constituency of the ruling party. So I think this was the complication that uh, newer constituencies continue to be drawn in. And similarly, I think I must also name that, you know, the Jat groups in Western Uttar Pradesh, they also have been voting, the Hindu Jats. They have also been voting for BJP. And so parts of their own constituency is turning again. So what I'm saying is that this is a very like a split scenario at this moment. And it cannot simply be described city versus rural areas or like this caste versus that caste. It has become much more fluid at the moment. And that's a very good moment to move on to a related question for the section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call. You ask us. Not very enthusiastic. You ask us. Our, our question comes from Kataki Zogikar. Kataki writes in, My question is about connections between the farmers' protests and other social movements in India. How are social movements protecting the rights of other marginalized groups, i.e. Dalit, Adivasi, Muslim, and LGBTQ communities, showing solidarity or collaborating with the farmers? Perhaps what we must mention is that the main slogan of the protest has been Kisan Mazur Ekta Zindabad, meaning long live the unity of workers and farmers. Mm. And in the beginning, I think nobody believed in this because inherently people thought that there are class interests, like there are there is landed peasantry and then there are you know landless peasants and workers and laborers. But I think here comes the thing that the movement has evolved in such a way that landed peasantry and the landless, they have come together because they believe that they have been pushed to a corner, that they are facing the same opposition, like the ruling party, that if, uh, you know, the agricultural sector collapses the way they are worried, then no one will benefit out of it. And it is taking further shape. What I'm trying to say is it began as a farm, anti-farm law protest, but it continues to build new alliances and solidarities. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people have wondered what is going to happen to these protests. I mean, after all, you know, are they going to shake up politics in some way? So, of course, no one knows about that. But what you can clearly see is that the language of unity, trying to create bridges between Hindus and Muslims, trying to cut across caste and trying to reach out to women. And actually, women have been present in very heavy numbers. 
And uh, they have also taken a decision which would be considered progressive to uh, celebrate 8th March, the International Women's Day at the protests. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people have been very surprised because, uh, you know, peasants are not seen by a lot of, uh, you know, intellectuals or uh, city-based activists as in any way open-minded or progressive because villages in India are seen as the dark places. But all of a sudden, there is actually an effort going on to speak a different kind of language. So it is evolving in ways which we had not expected. Thank you to all who sent in your questions. Please keep them coming at uaskus.co.uk. You can also just tweet at us. I'm at Emily C. Tampkin and Ido is at IDVCK and we'll get get them either way. And look out for our announcement of our guests next week on our international Twitter account at Statesman World. And now for our final segment, as ever, we are going to take a look ahead. Ravinder, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? Well, I have to say I am at the university. So one thing which has concerned me quite a bit is this whole debate on academic freedom, which is happening in France and which is actually spreading across Europe. And the attempts to censor, you know, what is taught and what is researched in, you know, this debate about uh, Islamo leftism, Mm -hmm. I think uh, many of us are quite concerned about that, uh, you know, the whole edifice of democracy, which is taken for granted in Europe, what does this kind of censorship or uh, creeping restrictions might mean for democracy in Europe? I think that's that's a really good example. And there's just one thing I'd add to that. It's there's been, obviously, since, since the Charlie Hebdo attacks in France, which were, the response to them was framed as a defence of freedom of speech and the right to offend and the right to kind of think differently. France has really sought to position itself as a kind of bastion of, of free speech and free thinking. And obviously, this this fairly absurd debate about so-called Islamo-leftism, which is definitely real is in some ways an attack on on free speech and the right to free thinking, as, as you've said, because these are ideas which may or may not be real, but if they were, would be offensive to some people. And I think there's a real kind of double standard in, in how they're treated. I'll be watching the situation in, in Armenia. So as I mentioned on this podcast, I think last week or the week before, there's been a lot of political instability in, in Armenia. The long fallout from Armenia's defeat in a war late last year with Azerbaijan over the disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. And so the, the Prime Minister, Nikol Pashinyan, is fighting for his political survival. So I'll be watching to see how that develops. And Emily, what will you be watching? I'll be watching to see whether the Democrats and Biden can actually get the stimulus through. So there's this $1.9 trillion stimulus plan that's meant to help the economy, help us get through the pandemic economically. And essentially, when Democrats came in, they said, we would rather do this in a bipartisan way. And now some of them are saying, well, we'll, you know, if we have to do this with just the Democratic votes that we have, then we'll do it because people need this relief. We'll see if they can get everybody on board. And I think one of the lessons that was learned in fact, I know this is one of the lessons that was, that was learned because the Democrats leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer from New York, said, we can't make the same mistake that we did back in the financial crisis over a decade ago when not enough was done, right? There was too much focus on, this is the, the narrative, there, there was too much focus on bipartisan unity, too much focus on incrementalism. People suffered and Democrats lost two years later. So we will see whether or not they are able to get that through. With that, all that remains is to thank Ravinder Kaur for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. As a reminder, her book is Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. And her piece 
and the New Statesman, which I highly encourage you to read, is How a Farmer's Protest in India Evolved into a Mass Movement that Refuses to Fade. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave us a review and tell your friends about it. Or your haters. As a final reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review and follow all of our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.